the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. When you hear the word church, what do you think of? Well, for many people, they think of a building with pews, maybe a steeple. Perhaps in your life experience, it is a church that um, has a tremendous sense of architecture about it and design. It has stained glass windows and, and, and vaulted ceilings and a pretty spectacular example of architecture. But for others, when you look at the true definition of the church from a biblical perspective, has far less to do with buildings, in fact, nothing to do with buildings at all, but rather to do with people. So what does the church look like? Well, joining us today with some insights, we're joined by Pastor Bill. He is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel of Mountain View. And Pastor, great to have you with us today. It's great to be here, Craig. Thanks you for know, I think in this day and age, especially with everything that we have going on in the world around us, I mean, you know, the, the Bible talks about the end times and there being seasons of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places, pandemics. We've certainly seen all of that and then some. And I right. have to wonder, particularly from a, a Christian perspective in a place like the San Francisco Bay Area, if many of these events that are taking place is not in one form or fashion a manner in which God is trying to get our attention to call us to be the church, to come into the church, be a part of the body of Christ. What do you think? Well, absolutely. I mean, what an exciting time to be a Christian. Uh, certainly, I just think each day we just see the pages of the Bible on the news uh, every night, you know, and, and uh, there's nothing I think that would surprise us at this point um, but I think it's an exciting time for the church. I think that uh, we're just seeing such a move of the Spirit right now uh, within the church and into the church as people, you know, from outside are looking inside. You know, when the when the fabric of society is shaken up the way that we've all been shaken up in these last years uh, and, you know, continue to be shaken up. Um, people start to look for answers and they realize that that what they thought was their firm foundation isn't nearly as firm as they once believed it was. And so they're looking for something that's real and something that's true and something that's, uh, you know, authentic, I guess, is the big word these days. And um, really, the more they look, the the more they realize that that's only found uh, in the scriptures, it's only found in God himself, and it's uh, it's driving a whole new generation of people uh, to really seek him out. So it, it's exciting, I think. I mean, it you know, none of us liked living through what we've lived through, and yet it's uh, it's producing wonderful fruit, I think, within the kingdom. You use the term authentic or authenticity, which I think is something that people are also very desperate for these days. I mean, we, we see such a tremendous lack of, of authenticity coming from mainstream media, coming from our leaders and our politicians, that it's almost as if uh, people wonder if it's an old-fashioned word anymore. And yet, as you suggest, there's that God-shaped vacuum inside of all of us. Uh, that longs for relationship with the Creator. Now, we might not be able to articulate it that way. We might be on a journey that leads us to right. many other means or attempts in our fallen sin nature to try and find a sense of fulfillment in mm -hmm. that part of our life. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think for each and every one of us, we discover that whether it's through drugs or riches or popularity or fame or power or whatever it might be, none can satisfy the way a relationship with the true creator of everything around us, including we ourselves, Absolutely. very God himself. And so in, in, that, in that quest for authenticity, what are, in, in your mind, Pastor Bill, some of the challenges facing the church today as we seek to be that, that preservative and that light before the world? Well, I think the, the biggest challenge facing the church today is that 
um, I think there are so many within the church who don't want to be the church. Mm. And what I mean by that is that we're trying to look like the world so that we can attract the world. And I, I do think that there's a period that, that, that worked, but it doesn't work anymore because I think that, uh, that people today, and especially these younger generations that are coming up, um, they have already had their fill of the world. And, you know, that veneer that just makes everything look so polished on social media and, and so, you know, polished in the, you know, the other forms of media that, that we've all grown up with. Um, it It's not taking people very long to see that that veneer is thin and that it wears out and that there really is something more that they need to look at. And I, I think that we as the church, um, again, I think we just need to, to, to admit that that's what people want. They want the real thing and there's no need for us to try to be anything different. You know, the, the thing that, that I love about the Bible is that um, the Bible is so real and so authentic. And as you know, Craig, being a student of the Bible yourself, the Bible doesn't anywhere try to hide the flaws of its main characters. I mean, it tells the good and the bad and the ugly about, I mean, the the, the fathers of the faith, if you will. Um, their lives were just as messy as our lives are. And you know, there, there is, there's people in the Bible that are as corrupt as any corrupt politician that you could, that, you know, or public figure that you could find today. And yet the Bible shows us the amazing way that God uses even these flawed individuals and he redeems even their worst mistakes. And he turns that, you know, again, in, into beauty for ashes, if you will. And I, I think there's there's such hope there that's in the pages of the scriptures, and there's such a reality there that um, that's what people are hungry for, and that's what they find, you know, as you just dig into the Bible and you get past the stories that everybody knows, and you start looking into the wonderful, rich pages of the Old Testament, and you start looking at, you know, the passages of the Gospels that, that people don't usually talk about. And that's where I think you find the real meat and you find the real depth and you find just the real humanity that matches your life story. And I think that that's what's such an encouragement to people that they, they realize, wow, I don't, I don't have to get myself cleaned up before I come to Jesus. I just come to Jesus with all my mess and he takes care of that. And that's what people, that's what people need. And it's not about, Again, our, our ministry at Calvary Mountain View, um, you know, we don't have a lot of flash. We we have wonderful people that lead us in worship, but we don't have any fog machines and we don't have any moving lights and stroke. And that's all, all that. I don't have a problem with any of that stuff. And yet I always joke with our people. I say, boy, if you're coming to church here, I know you're here for the right reasons because you're you're not here for the flash and the show you're here for the word of God and you're here because you believe that God has something that he wants to speak to each one of us today uh, that's for today. And so that, I just think that's the, the beautiful thing about the faith. And that's what, it's just the, the, the wonderful reality. I think the church just needs to walk in. Oftentimes somebody will come up to me after a message and they'll say, Oh, pastor Bill, it, it really spoke to me today when you were talking about X, Y, Z thing and, and I'll nod and I'll think, well, that's great. I'm so glad that that spoke to you. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I never actually said that. Like, I never actually said what it was that really ministered to them. And it used to really bother me. And I'm like, Lord, they're not even listening to what I'm saying up here. And and the Lord spoke to me one day and he goes, no, Bill, they're not listening to you. They're listening to me. Mm. And I said, oh, okay, Lord, yeah. I got the message. Yeah. That's the, the beauty, I think, of of what we're doing in, in the Calvary chapels is, um, you know, it's a lot of guys who simply love the Lord and want to be used by him and want to, want to be a vessel uh, that he can speak through. And, and God's the one, and the Holy Spirit's the one that's really speaking to this culture today with that message of, of hope that you've talked so much about. And it really comes down then, I think, to a matter of surrender and availability. And, yeah. you know, if, if we'll do those two things, and put our trust in the Holy Spirit to work out the rest, then, you know, all things come together for good for right. those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And I well, and, and empowering people to be able to do that too. Absolutely. The people, 
where the people look and they say, wow, if Bill can do it, then I certainly can well, do and it. And here's the funny thing. You know, as, as you were mentioning about some of, some of the, the, the faith leaders of Scripture, you know, the, the irony is if we took a couple of steps back and looked at not Paul, who wrote probably two-thirds of the New Testament, or any, any of these people that we would say are, are, are certainly uh, role models of the early church, the original 12, etc., etc., we would look at any of them. If it was simply a matter of investigating their, their wherewithal and qualifications based on their, their resumes— not a one would get hired. No. There's not a no. church that would anywhere say, Saul, this guy that was out there persecuting Christians right and left, right. we're going right. to let him get in the pulpit? Absolutely right. no way. Go back to the pulpit committee and say, keep looking. This is not our guy. I mean, none right. of them would qualify. And yet all of us stand on the shoulders of the faith legacy that they have left behind. And right. so, I, you know, I, I guess then the next question for us is, who will then stand on our shoulders of the faith legacy that we leave behind in influencing our friends, our co-workers, our family, our children? Right. right. Well, and how, how can we be faithful to leave it? And the example of these men that we see in Scripture is that we simply need to be devoted to God and yielded to him and whatever he wants to do with our lives and however he wants to use it. And I mean, again, that's why as we started talking about, I love studying the the people in scripture that God used because most of them were such knuckleheads. It gives me hope that God, that God could do something, uh, you know, that lasts through my life. Um, you know, he did it through their lives. As you pointed out, not a one of them were qualified, not a one of the 12 were qualified to, to be, you know, a, a disciple, let alone become the apostles. And, uh, you know, when Jesus chose each one of them, it's funny in the, in, in Mark's account, it's just after Jesus chooses the 12 that his family and friends come and think he's lost his mind. And I think that has a lot to do with it. He's like, look, we were worried about you before, but now we've just seen who you've called to be your 12 disciples and now we know that you've gone off the deep end jesus and yet of course he knew exactly what he was doing and he knows exactly what he was doing when he chooses each one of us let's uh let's pivot for a moment in the in the couple of minutes that uh, remain in our conversation for folks that have just tuned in and and uh they've appreciated you sharing from your heart today and they think you know i'd like to go check out uh, Calvary Chapel of Mountain View. Tell us a bit about what God is doing in the church. Where do you meet, and when can folks come on in and uh, participate in a uh, in a Sunday worship service? Yeah, so our Sunday morning services are at 10 a.m. and we meet in a beautiful church building that we actually uh, rent. It's, uh, but we meet there on Sunday mornings at 10, and it's at 1904 Silverwood Avenue. Uh, just right there in the heart of Mountain View. I always joke that we could throw a rock and hit Google from from where we are. Um, uh, but we uh, we have a wonderful church body that is really, uh, boy, you know, you talked at the beginning in your intro about what the church is, and and church to me says family, and you know, and and our church is really uh, grown into this beautiful family of people from all different walks of life. And, uh, you know, what's really exciting now, you know, I mean, all the churches look different now after the kind of after Corona, you know, after the pandemic. And, uh, but what, you know, we, we probably had nearly a dozen families move out of the area as a result of the pandemic, you know, families whose you know, their employers, these big tech firms said, you can go live anywhere you want and just work remotely. And, and they said, great, let's do it. And, you know, off they go. And Tennessee was calling and Texas was calling and Idaho was calling. And um, and yet, you know, God just continues to bring people. And, and I what's exciting for me right now, Craig, is that the people that have started in with us now kind of post-pandemic, there is a, a hunger for the word and a hunger for fellowship and a hunger for that sense of family and belonging and connection um, that I think is unique from what we were ever seeing before. 
and there's just a renewed sense of I think where where people realize that this is an important thing in their lives and they want it. We have a whole new group of uh, young people that are coming out now to the church. You know, some of the the college students from some of the the college campuses in the area uh, are coming out and just um, as we started out talking about, just really looking for truth and what you know, what it is and what does God say? Because all of these other things that they were told are true. Uh, they've come to the realization that they're not as true as, as they thought they were. <laughs> and and now they're looking for uh, for what is really true and they're finding it in the word. So yeah. it's pretty exciting, I think. Firm foundation upon which to build their lives. Pastor Bill, we sure appreciate your time and sharing a bit of your heart and what God is doing at Calvary Chapel Mountain View. Thanks again. Thanks, Greg. So Mark chapter 5, as we pick up, we're going to look at the next two events in Mark's account. They're two different events, but they're really interwoven for us by Mark because they occurred in a very beautiful and a very specific way. And they're two events that teach us a similar, similar lesson about Jesus' ability just to deal with those circumstances that come into our lives, which can so completely overwhelm us. You know, the kind of situations that are bigger than our lives, right? That may even threaten our lives, right? So the the title of the message today is, When Life Gets Too Big, We Need to Go to Jesus, right? So pick up with me in Mark chapter 5. And as is always the case with Jesus now at this point in his ministry, we see that there's a great multitude that gathered to him. Remember, the popularity of Jesus at this point is just off the charts, right? So very high, at least among the common people. Now, the religious establishment, remember that they simply saw him, they saw him as a threat, And remember, we've already seen them back in chapter 3. They have declared that they are plotting now about how they might destroy Jesus. But the common people, right? All they had to do was to see his boat coming back across. Word gets out, Jesus is on the way. And before he even gets to the shore, there's this multitude right there at the shoreline. Now, as we've said before, crowds are crowds, right? Multitudes are multitudes, but every multitude is made up of individual people. And so the Holy Spirit now through Mark is going to give us some real insight into two people who made up the part of the multitude that day that came there surrounding Jesus. And these were two people, as we're going to see, for whom life had certainly gotten way too big. And the first one of those people we see here starting in verse 22, where Mark says, and behold, now behold, right? That's a surprise word, right? Unexpected word. It's an attention kind of word, and we're going to see why. He says, behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. So out of the multitude emerges this man, Jairus. And Mark tells us that he's one of the rulers, probably of that local synagogue. He would have been the man whose responsibility it was just to make sure everything was running smoothly in the synagogue. In our terms, we probably wouldn't call him a ruler, but maybe an overseer. He's probably kind of a blending of a pastor and a, and a deacon. And this was a very well-respected position within the community. This man, Jairus, would have been known by everyone there in the community. Now, he also would have been very much a part of this religious establishment. And so as he pushes through here to the front of the crowd, right, to, to kind of meet Jesus right there on the shore, it may well have looked like there was trouble Right on the horizon for Jesus, and yet we see something very surprising at the end of that verse. Again, behold, it says at the end of verse 22, and when he saw him, it says he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. 
So he comes not to challenge Jesus, but to fall down in front of Jesus, right? To fall down at his feet and to begin to beg for the life of his sick child. Now notice in verse 23, Mark tells us, even in Mark's economy of words, he tells us that this man didn't just beg Jesus, but he begged him earnestly, right? So this means that this begging was filled with this great sense of emotion. Some of your translations may say that he was pleading fervently with him or that he pleaded with him urgently or he begged anxiously of Jesus. So the point is that this is a dramatic and a very emotion-filled scene if there ever was one. Now again, we've said it before, but I don't know when the last time you saw a man beg, but it's a pretty rare thing, right? It's a pretty rare occurrence in life. It takes a really big thing to drive a man, really to drive anyone to that place where they will beg for something from someone else, and especially to publicly beg something of someone. A person needs to be in a desperate place to do that. And of course, we see that Jairus has every good reason to be just this desperate because his young daughter, she's lying there sick at home. Not only is she sick, she's at death's door. She is just a blink away from dying. And I think that certainly any parent in this room, any of us even who aren't parents, you know, we can recognize that this is one of the great nightmares that can enter into any parent's life, really any person's life, and just to drive them to this kind of a desperate place. It's really a place where every other resource in life has failed. And we end up as a result, we end up at the feet of Jesus pleading with him for what we know that only he can do. So again, when life gets too big, we are driven to this point of desperation. And I think that on some level, certainly we have to admire, at least we have to recognize the faith that this man had, right? It probably wasn't a pure faith. It wasn't a developed faith. It wasn't a well-informed faith. And yet Jairus knew enough to know that Jesus could heal. And his faith had feet because he was willing to risk everything to come to Jesus. He was willing to risk his position, his reputation as one of the most important and most recognized, one of the most respected people in the city. And this is an important point, and it's, it's interesting, it's very significant. You know, the Holy Spirit could have simply said here in this passage, writing through Mark, he could have just written that there was a man who came to Jesus for healing for his dying daughter. And we would absolutely have understood the need. And yet the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. It is very important to the Holy Spirit that we know that this guy was a ruler of the synagogue. And yet here, to come here to Jesus at this point would have been to put all of that in jeopardy. He is putting everything he's worked for in life, all of it on the line to come to Jesus with this need. That is a desperate man. So he lays aside his pride and his dignity, his entire career, his reputation in order to do this. And this is why I think that this man Jairus should be of such great, great interest to all of us. Because every single one of us in this life is a Jairus. Because sooner or later we will find ourselves right here in his shoes. We are going to hit some kind of a situation in life, some sort of a trial in life, some kind of a difficulty in our lives that will just outstrip all of our personal resources. And I don't care how considerable those resources are for you. There will be a time when some situation comes that will just laugh at your power. And it will laugh at your money, and it will laugh at your security, and it will not care at all about your reputation. It will outstrip all of that, and everyone will eventually face this. No one will escape this. And so as with Jairus, so often it's at a time like this when a person finally does come to Jesus. Even though they may have already 
previously known all about Jesus. I don't think there can be any doubt that as the ruler of the synagogue, that Jairus knew all about Jesus. Certainly, they were well aware at this point, as we've seen, that there was a new dynamic on the spiritual scene there in Israel. There were things happening in Israel that hadn't been happening for 400 years. So Jairus, without a doubt, had known all about Jesus, probably knew a lot about Jesus for a very long time, and yet without any crisis, without any obvious need, or without any kind of extremity in his life, he just simply goes on with his life just ignoring Jesus, at least until, right? There is always an until moment in every human life. And there is a certain kind of person who would not come to the Lord apart from some kind of a desperate circumstance that developed in their life. And I know that because I was one of those people. Everything was good, right? Everything was too good until it wasn't. And suddenly, I needed something. I needed someone who was bigger. I needed someone who was bigger than me. I needed someone certainly who was bigger than my problem and someone who was bigger than my desperation. Now, for you, you may be much more like Jairus than I was. You know, you may be in a point where you're doing everything right. Your life is so moral and your life is so upright that without some kind of a disturbance, you would never, ever have seen your need for God. And looking around at a room this size, I have to wonder how many of us in this room have come to Jesus just in this same path of Jairus, right? Some crisis that was needed to get our attention just to bring us to him or we would have never ever even looked in his direction. Right? God knows how many of us, right? And maybe there's even one or two of you here this morning that haven't gotten to that point yet. And maybe just like Jairus, you've heard of Jesus Right, you've heard of him all your life, and yet now there's some sort of extremity that's, that's coming to bear in your life that is pushing you to seek him personally, and that's even why you showed up today. Let me encourage you with one of the lessons that this passage has for us. Don't ever be hesitant to come to Jesus. And I say that because sometimes a person can feel like, well, you know, I, I, I kind of feel bad coming to God. I feel bad turning to Jesus because it took this terrible circumstance in my life to get me to this point. You know, this, this tragedy. I didn't want it to be this way. I didn't want to come to him this way. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to ride out this circumstance and get myself back together. And then when I'm not so desperate, then I'll come to him. Don't do it. Don't do that in your life. You come to him right now. You come to him the moment, the first moment that you know that you need to come to him. The Lord loves you. The Lord loves Jairus. And he knew all about his history. He knew that Jairus was coming to him in the same way he knows all about your history. And he still loves you. So often it's that history that he'll use. He'll allow these things to come into our life just to jar us, to shock us into the realization that there are these bigger issues that can come into our lives that are too big for us. And we need Jesus to help us through that. And I I want you to notice this. Notice that Jairus was already a very, very religious man. Right? And I say that to say this, that religious men and religious women, they need to come to Jesus too. Right? They need to be saved as well. I will tell you, I was raised in a Christian home. I would never have ever said I didn't believe in Jesus. I just didn't personally know Jesus. And I didn't even personally know that I didn't know Jesus or that I needed to know Jesus. I just thought it was extra for those weird people until I was in crisis because of the mess that I had made of my life. This irreparable damage that I had done to my life, even though I had grown up religious. Remember that it was to this off the charts kind of a righteous religious person by the name of what? Nicodemus. 
It was to this religious man that Jesus said this. He said, most assuredly, I say to you. And when Jesus says that, it means listen up, right? Don't miss this. This is important. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, look, I don't care what kind of a person we're talking about here. Religious person, not religious, whatever it is. Unless a person is born again. Because that's how we enter into this new family. That's how we enter into this new relationship with God. And if you sit here this morning and you have come out of some kind of a religious system, or maybe you're even currently in one, I think about how many people have to come out of Mormonism, or come out of Jehovah's Witness, or come out even of Roman Catholicism. They have to come out of those things to truly be saved and to enter into that one-on-one personal kind of a relationship with Jesus as opposed to this relationship that they have with this system. And they come out of these things so often against the wishes of their families, right? These generations after generations of these families that have been involved in these systems. And yet we are talking about life and death here. Right? We're talking about eternity here. And there is an eternal difference between your religion and a real relationship with the living Jesus Christ. And sometimes it is only in this desperation. It's only in this intensity of desperation that it drives us just like it drives Jairus. Begging and pleading for help. He says, just come with me. Just touch her. I know that she'll live. And look what we see next. Wonder of wonders. It says in verse 24. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now, Jesus could have said... Right? Maybe Jesus should have had. I, I think if I were Jesus, I would have said, hey, weren't you one of the guys plotting to kill me? <laughs> but he didn't say that. He didn't say any of those things, and he won't say those things to you either. You just think about the relief. Think about what must have happened in Jairus' heart at this moment, because Jesus is on the way, and he knows that everything is going to be okay. And you just imagine what was happening inside of him when all of a sudden... The next verse, there's this interruption that's going to come to this perfect plan right out of the crowd. Look at verse 25. It says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd. And touched his garment. For she said, if, I only, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So suddenly out of nowhere, literally from the back, right? There comes this woman who also needs to be touched and to be healed by Jesus. But her issue was a chronic issue. A 12-year kind of a chronic issue. Some sort, Mark tells us, of a flow of blood, which most likely was probably like a chronic menstrual flow. And it was a very significant one at that. If you look down just a couple verses in verse 29, it's described as a fountain of blood, which simply helps give us a sense for the significance of just this constant loss of blood from her body. And so we think just simply from a medical standpoint, the kind of impact that this would have on you physically, just in, I'm no doctor, right? But just in terms of the anemia that this would cause and the weakness that this would produce, I think it's a wonder that she could even make it through the crowd to get to Jesus because she must have been so weak physically. And, but then even just beyond physically, you consider the consequences of something like this socially. Because a chronic condition like this, according to the law of Moses, that kind of flow would have made her ceremonially unclean. It would have made anyone who touched her also ceremonially unclean. So she's been leading this life of social isolation, probably total physical isolation from the touch of any family or friends. It would have barred her from ever attending the synagogue, let alone going to the temple. Her entire life has just been reduced to this chronic thing that's happening to her. 
And she is emotionally and she is mentally and she is financially wiped out. And so I think that this woman is important because I think that in her suffering, we see another dynamic completely to her desperation, even than we saw in Jairus. And it's a dynamic that I know many of you know all too well, and it is time. Time. Because not only are we driven to desperation, but then we're stuck just languishing there in our desperation. To have this same sort of desperation that Jairus felt, but to have it for 12 long years. So as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive, this woman has been suffering. Right? And if you are suffering through a chronic illness or a chronic relationship or a chronic circumstance or a cr- chronic consequence in your life and to suffer for 12 long years or for 20 long years or even more, that's the kind of thing that can bring us to this place of utter desperation and even to despair. Where hope is gone that we will ever feel normal again. That we'll ever feel normal physically or normal socially or normal emotionally. That is, until we hear about Jesus. Because look back, I love the beginning of verse 27. It says, when she heard about Jesus. So you imagine all of this 12 years of suffering. But when she heard about Jesus, hope was reborn in this woman as she heard about what he had done for other people or how he had healed other people. And it was that hope that then energized her drained body and strengthened her depleted spirit. And it gave her this faith in him and this confidence that if she could simply get to him and touch him, she knew she could be whole again. And so all of this is just going on somewhere inside of her. All of these emotions and these thoughts and all of her history and this desperation. And she makes her way there through the crowd, this massive crowd to approach Jesus. Again, the end of verse 28, because she knew if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Verse 29, and immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. I love that word immediately. Amen. She knew immediately the thing I've been feeling in my body for 12 years that is over now. She knew it. She could feel it. Imagine what happens inside of a person at a moment like that. I mean, her emotions and her mind and her heart must have just been soaring. And now all she needs to do is quietly sneak away as quietly as she had snuck up there Right and get back to her life. But we're going to see next, Jesus isn't going to let her do that because he loves her way too much. Look at verse 30. It says, And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Now, this is such a wonderful snapshot, I think, because even here for just this moment in time, Think about it. There were only two people in that multitude of people that knew that something had just happened. Because Jesus knew that that dynamic dunamis power had gone out of him. Right? He knew that the healing power of the Holy Spirit had just flown through him. And she knew that she had just received that power as it flowed into her. They were the only two, and yet all of a sudden, Jesus suddenly stops this great crowd of people. Think about it. This whole multitude of moving people just simply stops on a dime. And Jesus asks this question that we have to believe he already knew the answer to. He says, who touched my clothes? And what we're going to see next is it creates just a bit of confusion. It says in verse 31, but his disciples said to him, Well, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? They say, like, Jesus, look around. You are surrounded by this huge crowd. There are people all around you, and they're bumping into you, and they're pressing in upon you, and you're asking, who touched my clothes? He says in verse 32, it says, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing. And I read that, and I just get the sense of all of a sudden this stillness, right, of that stopped crowd. As he looks and his eyes just settle 
right onto this woman. And I would think that without a doubt, their eyes must have locked with each other. And it says in verse 33, but the woman, fearing and trembling and knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Understand, Jesus stopped and he identified this woman out of the crowd, not to embarrass her, but to bless her. And to bless her in a very special way. And to recognize this real, authentic, genuine faith that he saw in her. And I think that this woman with the issue of blood has such a very important lesson for us as Christians because it teaches us about the importance in our relationship with Jesus, not simply of faith, but of a desperate faith, of a can I just reach out and touch the hem of his garment kind of faith. Because it's very easy after a a bit of time walking with the Lord where we stop coming to him in this desperate kind of way, the way that we did at the beginning. And sometimes we say, well, it's just Christian maturity. It's actually nothing of the sort, right? Remember back when you were a brand new Christian, you remember that, I mean, all we knew about Jesus was whatever we had read in the Bible about him that morning. And whatever it was we had read that morning, I mean, we expected him to do that and to be that in our lives for that day. We expected him to speak and to move and to heal and to do and for us to be able to recognize that his fingerprints were now all over our lives. And we really believed him for all of these things. And then what happens? A horrible thing happens is that over time as we walk with the Lord for a while, we kind of just join this big religious crowd that's just following Jesus all around. And we learn with the rest of the crowd to just kind of jostle Jesus, to bump up against him once in a while. But somebody just sort of jostling Jesus as a part of a crowd and somebody who is touching him and reaching out to him in this kind of a desperate faith, those are two entirely different things. And Jesus knows the difference. Jesus can feel the difference. Here's this multitude that is jostling him and moving him and rubbing and shoving and pushing and all of these other things. And suddenly he stops in the middle of all of this and he says, somebody touched me. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, I am used to being jostled and bumped and thronged by these great religious crowds, but something different just happened. This is different and she is different because this is rarer than you can know is how few people there are even in a religious crowd. Jesus says, how few people there are who really reach out to me with a true faith and a sincere faith, and a desperate faith about anything. And Jesus says, I recognize that when it happens. And for those of us who've walked with the Lord for a little while, let me ask you a question. When is the last time you really grabbed a hold of him with your faith in this kind of a way about anything? And yet we can think that we're walking by faith when we're not. And so I think that this part of the passage is such a beautiful wake-up call to not just head into church with the crowd. Don't just head, you know, out to the midweek study with the crowd. Don't just go to be around Jesus and to be around the things of Jesus and then think, oh, I'm walking by faith. When you know it can be days and weeks and months and years since I have actually believed in him for something big in my life. And so often it takes us getting to that point of desperation just to snap us out of that condition. And it's so important, not just in those early days of our Christian life, but all the way through our Christian walk, that we really honor him with this kind of deep faith. And when we bring these kinds of things to him with this kind of faith and with a, a desperateness and a confidence that his power can still flow freely right into our lives. And I think just what a, what, how beautiful is just the power of this passage and the encouragement of this passage to our faith and just this need need that we have a renewed sense of some desperation in our walk with him. I love this woman and what her faith speaks to us through her life into our life. And now speaking of faith, we've got poor Jairus 
And whatever faith that we had said that he had, it was now being stretched right by the minute, literally. Jesus had stopped now and he's had the, having this kind of an extended interaction with this woman. It probably took less time than it did for me to talk about it. But still, it took time. Right? This was a delay in what Jairus, this critical crisis that he was in. And now we're going to see that that faith that Jairus had, it was about to be tested in the way that he feared the most. Because now the narrative turns back to him. Look at verse 35. It says that while he was still speaking, so while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You know, there are, there are times in our lives when our desperation or our situation simply goes from bad to worse. Where we have been hanging on by this thread of faith that we have and we have sought the Lord and we have come to Jesus now in this desperation. But things don't get any better and in fact they just get worse. And now we're at a point where our circumstance is even beyond what Jesus can fix. Or at least that's what we think, right? But this is the point where Jairus was. Right? Why even trouble the teacher any further? But look how Jesus responds to this. Verse 36, it says, As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. So Jesus heard the report and the recommendation from Jairus' friends in verse 35, but then Jesus adds his own remedy right here in verse 36, and he speaks right to the broken heart of this father. Before anyone could say anything else, Jesus simply says, do not be afraid, only believe. Right? He just answers this emotion that the father was feeling. Right, So when life gets too big and we're driven to desperation or we're stuck in desperation or when our desperation goes from bad to being even worse, Jesus says, do not be afraid, only believe. And more literally, in another translation, what Jesus actually says is, do not be afraid, just trust me. Do not be afraid, only believe. So however you prefer to translate it, here's what's interesting, is that it is written in the present tense in the Greek. And what the present tense in the Greek speaks of, it doesn't just speak of something happening now, but it speaks about something happening continually. So what Jesus is saying is more like, keep on not being afraid. And instead, he says, keep on trusting in me. What Jesus says is, hey, you know that way that you were feeling about two minutes before this report came in? He says, don't stop feeling that way. Don't stop feeling as hopeful as you were when we were headed to see her before this woman came in. He says, don't stop feeling that day. He says, do stop being afraid and just keep on believing. He says, only believe. And I love that word only. So I want you to circle that one. And then I also love the word believe, and I want you to circle that one too. Because I think that here is yet another one of these great lessons for the passage. I mean, maybe you are here today and you're in this place even this morning where you are just completely overwhelmed and completely overdone because you've had this terrible news that's come into your life and all of a sudden whatever faith you had is gone and now there's just this fear that's gripping your heart. And I love only believe because when a person gets into that kind of a place they can probably really only concentrate on about one thing. And that is not the time to sit down with that person who's just received this kind of completely devastating news and say, okay, get out some paper because I'm going to give you a list of 25 super helpful things that a person in your condition needs to really be aware of. right? Because they simply can't even process five things at that moment, let alone 25 things. What they can hold on to is probably one thing. And that's what Jesus just gave Jairus here. He says, you just need to hold on to this one thing right now, Jairus, and that's to keep believing in me. Keep trusting in me. Just keep having faith in me. Faith, the Bible says, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is believing something to be true simply because God said that it's true in spite of what everyone else says must be true. 
And sometimes I'll be talking with someone in the wake of this kind of devastating news that's come into their life, whether it's a diagnosis of a health issue or maybe it's the prognosis of the reality of another issue that's coming to bear in their life. And they'll get this report and according to the experts, you know, it's, it's turned into this thing or, or this is what the experts say, you know, this is now what you can expect in your life right now. And that's the time that I will usually pray something like this with them. I'll say, you know, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these medical professionals or we thank you for these experts, you know, whatever the, the, the field is. And we thank you for their expertise and we thank you for their care and for their concern. But Lord, they have brought us some difficult news here. And what we want to know is what do you have to say in this situation? Because, Lord, we are being overwhelmed by all of these voices, and we need to know how do you see this from your throne in heaven. And we need, Lord, to hear that from you. And then I'll usually pray for them, you know, Lord, would you just bring them a verse? Bring it to their remembrance. Or, Lord, just bring them a lyric from a hymn or from a a worship song. Bring them something that infuses your perspective into this situation, Lord. We have heard from everybody else, but now we need to hear from you. And that should always be our prayer, because once we've heard from God, and once we have his assessment on how he sees it, now we can be at rest. And that's exactly what Jesus provides here for Jairus. He comes in and he just speaks to him and he says, only believe, just trust in me. And so they they continue on. They leave the multitude. Look what it says in verse 37. It says, and he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Verse 38, then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now understand what's happening here. Jesus arrives there at the house and these people are lamenting loudly and they're crying out and they're weeping and they're wailing here at the house. Because in those days, when you would have a death of a loved one, you would hire these professional mourners. And so imagine we've got this huge crowd and the idea behind the mourners is that they would mourn publicly to allow the family to grieve privately. And so Jesus comes in and he sees all of this and he tells them that all of your commotion is completely unnecessary because the child isn't dead at all, but she's just sleeping, right? This is not the end of the story, Jesus says, because when Jesus, from his perspective, looks at death, Jesus looks at death as something that you can easily arise from, just like we arise from sleep. Look what it says at the beginning of verse 40. It says, and they ridiculed him. I mean, these were the paid professionals. These people literally did death for a living. If anyone knew when someone was dead, it was these people. And the truth is, she was dead. She was dead from the physical perspective. She was dead from their perspective. She just wasn't dead from Jesus' perspective. So they mock Jesus, and look what Jesus does with them. It says that they ridiculed him, but when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Now, I think quickly... This verse is an important one, and I think it's an instructive one, because it shows us that Jesus proceeded to remove all of these people along with their unbelief. He simply removed them from the situation, not for his sake, but he did it for the sake of Jairus and his wife, and for the sake of the faith that they had. Now look at our last couple verses. What do you think is about to happen here? You probably read ahead. It says in verse 41 that then he took the little child by the hand. And said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. Literally what it says in the Greek is that they were out of their minds with great amazement. Minds blown with great amazement. 
and I guess so. I mean, Jesus had just raised this girl from the dead. Dr. Luke puts it like this. He said that her spirit returned and she arose immediately. So the word of Jesus, right, the power of Jesus had just brought victory over this death in a little girl, just as it had brought victory over this disease in this woman, just as it had brought victory over the demons that had possessed that man at Gadara, just as it had brought victory over the danger of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. You talk about a faith-filled few days in the life of the disciples. Now, I need to say what you already know because I want you to know something more. All of these different passages do not teach us that Jesus will always do what he did here. The things he did in all of these other passages, right? But what they reveal to us is that he can do it when it is his will to do it. And so when he doesn't heal, when he doesn't stop the storm, when he doesn't free us immediately from our affliction, we still are able to rest in the fact that it's not because he doesn't have the power to do it, but it's because he knows that somehow it wouldn't be best. When he doesn't do it, it's because he knows that somehow it would be a violation of his perfect wisdom and his perfect love and his highest for that person. And to understand this, it's not trying to explain away his power, but it's simply to understand that things are always more complicated than simply how we look at things. God is there. He's there to rest in during these desperate times in our lives. But... We rest not only in his great power, but we need to also be able to rest in his great wisdom as it relates to our lives. And we also need to be able to rest in his great love that he wants to pour into our lives. so, So what's his word to us when he doesn't heal? What's his word to us when he doesn't calm the storm? When he doesn't deliver us? Well, it's the same. It's the very same that we saw up in verse 36. Look back there. He said what? Do not be afraid, only believe. Now you don't need to circle anything because hopefully you already did circle it, right? He says, do not be afraid, only believe, but don't just believe in my power. He says, believe in my wisdom. Believe in my love also in this situation. Verse 40 says, he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and simply so that he could make an exit. And he said that something should be given her to eat. That's a message to the parents. She's no longer sick anymore. Everything's working in the way that it's supposed to. She needs to just return back to her normal life. Do not be afraid, only believe. You can trust in him in your situation. You can trust in his power. You can trust in his wisdom, and you can trust in his love. So where do we go when life overwhelms all of our natural resources? We go to Jesus, and we go in our absolute desperation. Right? So this, this passage, both of these stories are all about the importance of that desperate faith and how we can never outgrow that in our lives. True maturity as a Christian is marked by the strong, believing faith in Jesus, where we're doing more than just thronging him or just jostling him with this religious crowd, but we're exercising that personal faith in him, and we're learning to really rest and to rest in his power and in his wisdom and in his love, and to to let that be what carries us right through those most desperate moments in our lives. Amen? Those moments when life really does get too big. A look at the ministry of Calvary Chapel Mountain View, which meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at downtown Mountain View. Complete details online at ccmv.org, or you can call the church at area code 650-564-4274. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to the website 
and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.